First of all, what is the ocean? When people say the ocean, they, they tend to think of the sea, but it's much bigger than that. The ocean, we are the ocean. Uh, it's, it's water in continuous circulation, sometimes in the sea, sometimes in ice, sometimes underground, sometimes in the atmosphere, and sometimes in the cells of every living plant and animal. Water continuously flowing through all of those different mediums. I mean, the water in your body right now was once probably uh, three or four months ago in the cells of a dandelion. That's the way it is. We are the ocean now. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Captain Paul Watson, marine wildlife conservation and environmental activist, as well as the founder of the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. Captain Paul Watson was one of the founding members and directors of Greenpeace, one of the most recognized conservation organizations in the world, and the founder of Sea Shepherd that he built into the most effective marine conservation organization on the planet. For over 50 years, Captain Paul Watson has been at sea fighting illegal operations intent upon destruction and death, impacting all species in the sea from phytoplankton to the great whales. Utilizing the strategy of aggressive nonviolence, he has shut down hundreds of illegal activities around the planet, saving hundreds of thousands of lives. Captain Watson has never changed his outlook, his dedication, courage, and imaginative thinking towards finding effective solutions to the seemingly impossible problem of how we defend and protect life in the sea. Paul Watson, arguably the most prolific and successful marine life conservationist of our time, is now building a foundation in his name, the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. Captain Watson has been awarded many honors for his dedication to the oceans and to the planet. Among the many commendations for his work, he received the Genesis Award for Lifetime Achievement, and was named one of the top 20 environmental heroes of the 20th century by Time magazine, and he was also inducted into the U.S. Animal Rights Hall of Fame in Washington, D.C. He was also awarded the Amazon Peace Prize by the President of Ecuador, and Captain Watson is also only the second person after Captain Jacques Cousteau to be awarded the Jules Verne Award, dedicated to environmentalists and adventurers. Listen in for some great takeaways about Captain Watson's journey as a marine wildlife and environmental activist and his mission to make the world, especially our waters, a better place. I have the pleasure today of being with Captain Paul Watson, marine wildlife conservationist and environmental activist, and the founder of the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us, Captain Paul Watson, today. Well, thank you for having me. My family and I were big fans and, and watching you on Well Wars, which we'll, I'm sure we'll uh, talk a little bit about 
I know about you, but so our listeners can learn a little bit about you. Can you kind of give us the 10,000 foot view about Captain Paul Watson and who you are? I've been doing what I've been doing now for, well, ever since I was 10 years old when I rescued a family of beavers and uh, just carried on doing it. And I was a co-founder of the Greenpeace Foundation in 1972. And I left Greenpeace in 72 to, to establish the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society in 1977. And then I left the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society in uh, July of 2022 to establish the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. Amazing. So it sounds like it's something that's been in your DNA since birth almost. As a founding member of Greenpeace, what do you think gave you the vision back in the 70s to be such planet first? Greenpeace uh, began with, you know, the detonation of a five megaton nuclear device under Amchitka Island in, uh, in the Aleutians of Alaska. And uh, we were very concerned about that because it was, uh, you know, the, we recently had the Anchorage earthquake and we were concerned about the possibility of tsunamis like the Anchorage earthquake hit uh, Hilo and also Vancouver Island. So we got together and we set up a group called the, the Don't Make a Wave Committee. And it came from two other groups, the Sierra Club and the Quakers. Quakers had sent a ship to Bikini Atoll in 1956 to protest against atmospheric testing. So we decided to uh, do the same thing, get a ship, go up to Amchika Island. So we called it the Don't Make a Wave Committee. But at one of the early meetings, uh, somebody left the meeting, flashed a peace sign and said, uh, peace. And Bill Darnell, he, he said, well, make it a Greenpeace. And uh, Bob Hunter said, great name for the ship. So we named the boat the Greenpeace. And then in 1972, we changed the name of the Don't Make a Wave Committee to the Greenpeace Foundation. The approach was to, um, to use media, to focus media on these events to get attention and to try and change things. Although we didn't stop the nuclear uh, testing in 71, there were no further tests after that because of the publicity that was generated. Amazing. And what prompted you, I know you were with Greenpeace for quite some time, what led you to leave there and found the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society? What was the impetus there? I was the first officer on all all of those voyages, especially to uh, know to protect whales and we confronted the soviet whaling fleet in the north pacific what was increasingly frustrating to me is that we were really just hanging banners taking pictures and uh, not really stopping uh, you know them from doing what we're doing so i decided to set up sea shepherd with a different agenda that is to directly intervene to stop these atrocities and i established a group sort of a a philosophy of aggressive nonviolence, which means we're going to be aggressive but we're not going to hurt anybody and we never have but sometimes you just have to uh, take action. And, you know, for instance, uh, we're opposing illegal activities. So I don't think that it's improper to damage equipment, which is being used for illegally killing whales or killing seals. So that's one of the reasons that we've been able to uh, operate within the, the boundaries of the law and of practicality, because we're targeting illegal activities. So did you feel like during your time at Greenpeace, or at least towards the end, that there wasn't enough of that action going on that really prompted you to make that changeover? I was the leader of the SEAL campaign in 1977, and uh, a sealer was about to kill a SEAL with his club, and I reached up and grabbed the clubs, took it from his hand, threw it in the water, and I got reprimanded by the Greenpeace board for, they accused me of uh, theft and vandalism, stealing the man's club and destroying it. I said, well, I saved the life of a seal. And to me, the life of the seal was worth more than the man's club. If I had to do it over again, I, I would do it over again. And they said, well, that's unacceptable uh, behavior. I said, well, I guess you and I, uh, Greenpeace and I just don't have a fit because I'm not going to stand and watch a whale or a seal or a dolphin be killed and not intervene. 
Right. So founding Sea Shepherd, the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, that allowed you to basically handle things the way that you saw fit that was within your core values, if you will. Yeah. For example, in 1979, I hunted down the pirate whaler, the Sierra, a vessel that was actually wanted by Interpol. And uh, I found it off the coast of Portugal, chased it into a Portuguese port. And when I knew the conditions were safe, I rammed it twice, split it open to the waterline, ended its career. We accomplished something that the International Whaling Commission had been unable to do for 10 years. So uh, that kind of direct action certainly seemed to be a successful approach. Yeah, amazing. Amazing that, uh, you know, sometimes how independent individuals and outside of the scope of government can sometimes be more effective than government itself, right? They called us pirates. And I said, well, you know, one thing about pirates, they get things done, (laughs) (laughs) not encumbered by bureaucracy. Yeah. How has uh, Sea Shepherd, you know, I feel like it's gone from being an organization to almost like a global movement. How has that genesis, you know, taken place? My objective with Sea Shepherd was to make it into a a global movement and uh, to be decentralized. And that's what happened. So, you know, Sea Shepherd groups, say, in France or Australia or New Zealand, they're all independent entities. But the theory was to all work together towards a, a common cause. You know, you can take out a leader, an individual, you can shut down an organization, but you can't shut down a movement. Right. How have you seen the changes in that organization or the changes that have taken place there? What have been some of the positive impacts that you've come to as a result of that organization and that movement, if you will? Well, over the last 45 years, we've had a lot of positive uh, things happen. I mean, we shut down, we drove the Japanese whaling fleet out of the Southern Ocean. They're not killing whales down there any longer. We shut down whaling in Iceland. Uh, we shut down pirate whaling operations. We exposed uh, drift net campaigns. We invaded the Soviet Union back in 81 to get a- evidence on illegal whaling activities there to present to the International Whaling Commission. So that approach was actually receiving, you know, getting a lot of uh, positive outcomes. And it was, you know, I was encouraging the various groups around the world to don't depend upon me to, to lead this. Go out and initiate uh, campaigns and follow your passion. And, and that was, for the most part, what they were doing for all of those years up until recently. Yeah, amazing. I've heard you tell stories about seeing in the eyes of a well, right? And you talk about what that's taught you and, and kind of what other people should know. So, you know, what has that, you know, seeing into the eyes of a well, what has that taught you? And what do you think others need to know about those powerful moments? And what should they take away from your experience? Because not everybody has that experience, right? Well, June 1975 was a a life-changing experience for me. We were going out to confront the the Soviet whaling fleet in the North Pacific. And our idea was to put our bodies on the line between the harpoons and the whales. And we were reading a lot of Gandhi at the time. We felt, well, this is the way to do it. And, you know, Bob Hunter and I found ourselves in a small inflatable boat in front of a Soviet harpoon vessel that was bearing down on us at 22 knots. And in front of us, fleeing for their life, were eight uh, sperm whales. And Every time the um, the harpooner tried to get a shot, I would maneuver the boat to block his shot. And this worked for about 20 minutes until the uh, the captain on the Soviet vessel came running down the catwalk. And he screamed into the ear of the harpooner, then looked down on us, brought his finger across his throat and smiled. And that's when I realized Gandhi wasn't going to work that day. Oh boy! And a few moments later, there was a horrendous explosion. The harpoon went over our head, slammed into the backside of one of the whales in a pod. 
and it was a female, and she screamed. It was a, I never even knew whales could scream, but suddenly the whale rolled on her side, fountain of blood everywhere, and the largest uh, whale in the pod, this huge uh, bull sperm whale, rose up uh, out of the water, then slapped the water with his tail and dove, and he swam right underneath of us and threw himself at the bow of the Soviet vessel in order to protect his pod. And uh, they were ready for him. They had a, an unattached harpoon, and the harpooner pulled the trigger and hit the whale point blank in the in the head. And the whale fell back in the water, screaming in agony, blood everywhere. And as he was thrashing about on the surface, I caught his eye, and he suddenly dove. And now I saw a trail of bloody bubbles coming straight towards me really fast. And he came up and out of the water at an angle so that the next move was to just come down crashing on our small little inflatable boat. But as I looked into his eye, and it was so close I could see my own reflection in that eye, I saw something that really changed my life. That whale understood what we were trying to do because I could see the effort that he made to pull himself back. His head began to slide beneath the surface of the sea, and he died. He could have killed us, chose not to do so. But I also saw something else in that eye, a feeling of of pity not for himself, but for us, that we could take life so thoughtlessly. And for what? Why were they killing these whales? The Soviets were killing whales for sperm oil and spermaceti oil. It was highly prized for high heat-resistant machinery for lubricating. And one of the things that it was mostly prized for was the construction of intercontinental ballistic missiles. And I said to myself, here we are. We're killing these beautiful, intelligent, socially complex, sentient, self-aware creatures for the purpose of making a weapon meant for the mass extermination of human beings. And that's when it just struck me, we're insane. This just is not sanity at all. So a few years later, I, um, you know, we sank half of Iceland's whaling fleet and destroyed their whale processing plant, shut down their operations for uh, 17 years. And a former colleague from Greenpeace came to me and said, well, you know, I just want to let you know that what you did in Iceland was despicable, reprehensible, and unforgivable. I said, yes, yeah, so? <laughs> and he said, I, well, I thought you might know what people think about what you did. And I said, you know, John, I don't really care what you think about what we did or what anybody in Greenpeace or anybody in the world thinks about what we did. We sank those ships for the whales, John. Find me one whale anywhere on this planet that disagrees with what we did. And I promise you, we won't do it again. And to this day, I imagine he hasn't found one yet. <laughs> no, the whales, uh, you know, we are the voice, really. But, you know, the problem is, is humanity is waging war on, on the planet. You know, there's so many things that are happening that is going to have severely impact our own future. You know, since 1950, that was the year I was born, there's been a 40% diminishment in phytoplankton populations in the sea. And phytoplankton, you know, produces 70, up to 70% of the oxygen we breathe and also sequesters enormous amounts of CO2. Why is that being diminished? Because we're killing off whales and dolphins and seabirds. And those are the animals that produce the um, nutrient base for the phytoplankton, the nitrogen, the iron, the magnesium. It's in their feces. And, you know, one blue whale for every day defecates three tons of manure brought up from deep below the sea and up to the surface. The whales are the farmers of the ocean. Right. And we're killing them off. I alluded to it earlier about whale wars, but I came to know about you when my older son alerted us to whale wars and he got our whole family to watch it. And it it was pretty eye opening for us. You know, how did that show come to be, you know, with all your adventures? I went to all the different networks. I said the biggest show on Discovery right now is a bunch of men going into a remote, very cold area to catch crabs. I can give you men and women going to a far more remote, colder area to save whales. It's got to be more compelling than catching crabs every week. 
the one network that went for it was Animal Planet, and they thought it was a good idea. And in 2007, we uh, did our first uh, episode, and it lasted for about 10 years. But the reason that it's not there anymore is because Japan uh, gave up and left the, uh, the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary. So we won the battle, so there's no need for the TV show. But I always knew that the most powerful weapon on the planet is the camera. If it's not on camera, it might as well never have happened. That's how you change things, I think, is through the camera and through media. You know, we don't go anywhere without cameras. Yeah. Do you have any uh, any new shows in the pipeline, so to speak? Well, this summer we're working on doing a campaign to protect up to 169 endangered fin whales in Icelandic waters. We plan to have another television show based on that. And there is a possibility we'll have to return to the Southern Ocean because Japan is looking at, they're just finishing the construction of a new factory ship, a $65 million ship, and uh, they're not going to build that for nothing. So we anticipate they're going to be heading back to the Southern Ocean to once again unlawfully kill uh, whales. And uh, if that happens, we want to be there to greet them when they arrive. You mentioned it earlier, right? Your your idea around or strategy around aggressive nonviolence. You know, can you share with us how you came up with this strategy and how that it's worked over the past few decades to saving, you know, countless endangered species? I know you mentioned one instance, but how did you come up with this whole idea and what has been the impact as a result? It really comes down to harassing, blockading, uh, and removing the equipment that is being used to conduct these illegal activities, sinking a whaling ship, uh, confiscating drift nets, confiscating gill nets. For instance, uh, in 2015, we pulled one gill net from the Southern Ocean from one ship, and that gill net was 72 kilometers long and weighed 70 tons. It took 200 hours to pull it up from the bottom of two kilometers down. This is the kind of technology which is destroying our oceans, gill netters, drip netters, uh, purse saners and everything. Uh, there's enough fishing line and nets set every day in the ocean to go around the, this planet three times. So we, we concentrate on destroying those. In Mexico, we removed 150,000 meters of, uh, of gill nets uh, to save the endangered uh, vaquita porpoise. So it's really uh, removing that equipment or blocking the use of that equipment is what, uh, is what aggressive nonviolence is. Now, there's a perception that it's violence, but that's because uh, in our society, a lot of people value property over life, even if that property is being used illegally. You know, when people ask me, uh, you know, people say you're an eco-terrorist. I said, nope, not an eco-terrorist. I've never worked for Monsanto or Exxon, <laughs> so I'm not an eco-terrorist. Has there been situations where people's lives have been put in danger as a result, whether it be, you know, your own and your crew or vice versa, those that you're chasing, uh, for lack of a better term? Well, we take every precaution to make sure that nobody is injured, but it is risky. There's no doubt about that. I, I used to ask my crew, I said, are you prepared to risk your life to protect a whale? And if they said no, I wouldn't take them. And when some people say, well, that's, that's being very unreasonable to ask young people to risk their life to protect a whale. And my answer to that is why? We ask young people all the time to risk their life for real estate and oil wells and religion and flags. I think it's a far more noble activity to risk your life for an endangered species or an endangered habitat. So it's just a question of, of values, really. I mean, our society is extremely hypocritical. A few years back, I read a story in Time magazine about a ranger in Zimbabwe, and he had shot and killed a poacher who was about to kill a black rhinoceros, and human rights groups were attacking him for this. How dare you kill a human being to protect an animal? 
And I think his response to that really illustrated uh, the hypocrisy in our society. He said, well, if I was a police officer in Harare and a man ran out of Barclays Bank with a bag of money and I shot him in the head right in front of everybody on the street, you'd call me a hero and give me a medal. So why is it a bag of paper worth more than the future heritage of the nation of Zimbabwe? Very interesting perspective. You know, we were in uh, prior to uh, COVID, my family and I, uh, the year before, took a visit to South Africa. And, you know, it was very interesting to learn that when we were on the safari and we were in the car driving through the savannah, if you will, our driver had a box and we thought that there was a, a pistol, a gun in there, you know, to protect us. And he looked us dead in the eye and he said, no, no. He goes, first of all, that's a camera. He goes, second of all, he goes, nobody around here carries guns. The only people that have guns on the Savannah are poachers or the anti-poachers who are protecting the animals. And that's it. It's interesting that in that environment, that those are the only people that are really carrying firearms are, you know, they're not even there to protect themselves. They feel like they're in a good enough position to make their way away if they need to in a, in a nonviolent form without injuring an animal or animals for that matter. I'd love you to share somebody who is a founder of Greenpeace, right? How did it feel like for you to go from the rebel who leaves Greenpeace to now you are being invited by foreign countries to really help them combat poachers? That's got to be an amazing shift. What does that feel like? Well, that's what uh, I think was the downfall of of Sea Shepherd was being invited by these countries, these African countries and everything. Because once you start working with uh, governments, and uh, I was concerned about this right from the beginning, the governments then begin to dictate what you can do and what you can say. Myself, I'm opposed to working in partnerships with, with, with governments. I don't want to be a puppet. I don't want to be used to greenwash their appearance. You know, for instance, in Mexico right now, you know, we were making a lot of headway with Operation Milagro, and that meant confiscating nets. And uh, if they confiscate the nets, then that's really hurting their poaching activities. But then the Mexican government said, no, no, we're not going to pump it. It's upsetting the fishermen too much. We can't do that. So then uh, Sea Shepherd uh, got uh, reduced to basically standing there and watching, you know, which is why I left Greenpeace, <laughs> you know, for, for watching. And, and when anything happens, they're, they're supposed to call the Navy, but the Navy sometimes shows up and sometimes they don't. I was very uh, much against uh, this continued operation working in partnership with the government of Mexico because all we we're doing is making the Mexican government look good. With the African countries, my concern was, well, Namibia has one of the the largest seal hunts, and yet why are we working with a country that's killing seals? Why are we working with Tanzania and Liberia who support the Japanese at the International Whaling Commission? You know, these countries get monies from World Bank and IMF, and they get monies specifically to protect their waters. But what Sea Shepherd was doing was going in and doing it for them for nothing, and uh, who knows where that money goes. Anyway, that's one of the reasons that I, for leaving uh, uh, sea Shepherd is that I just, I was basically told that my approach was too confrontational, too controversial, and was no longer uh, the position that a Sea Shepherd wanted to take. Not all, all Sea Shepherd, although, by the way, I, like I said, it's a movement. So uh, Sea Shepherd France, Sea Shepherd UK, Sea Shepherd Brazil, Sea Shepherd Hungary are working with me still. Right. A lot of that was driven by the countries themselves not agreeing, the specific countries not agreeing with the methods or the methodology, but there are some that still agree with it. And those are the ones that you're still aligned with. Is that fair? That's right. Like, for instance, uh, they told us we had to repaint our ships from, you know, we had very dramatic colors. 
cam uh, razzle dazzle camouflage colors. No, we had to repaint them a drab gray. We couldn't use our pirate flag. We had to use like a, a picture of a whale flag. I mean, when countries start dictating to you <laughs> how you're supposed to present yourself, you know, that's not a partnership. They, you know, basically we were reduced to becoming Uber drivers for government authorities. Right. They were calling the shots on where, when, and how you were to go yes. about your business, more or less. And we really need to concentrate on, and this is what I intend to do with the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. And the reason I named it that way, because, you know, I can't use the name Sea Shepherd. I can't use the logos I designed. So I set the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. So, well, they can't take my name, even though, by the way, <laughs> they're trying to do that. They're trying to sue me for using my name. Uh, we want to continue doing what we've been doing for the last, you know, 45 years. And that is to enforce international law on the high seas against illegal operations. Right now, Iceland is killing endangered fin whales. Endangered. I don't know what people don't understand about that word. It's endangered. And they're doing it in violation of the International Whaling Commission's moratorium on commercial whaling. This guy's killing whales and selling them to the Japanese or to tourists in restaurants in uh, Reykjavik. That is commercial whaling. It's blatantly illegal. But he's a multimillionaire. He's got a lot of political pull in Iceland, so he gets them to basically give them a permit to do it, even though the majority of Icelanders are opposed to the killing of whales and more would rather replace it with whale watching. So uh, I don't see any alternative but to go there and uh, confront him on the high seas with what he's doing. He, he has two whaling ships. He used to have four, but we sank two of them in 86, and they were never uh, recovered. So we reduced his fleet by half, and now we have to stop the other half. The mission of the Captain Paul Watson Foundation, right? So is that just related to seas, or are you going to be expanding that to other areas as well? The mission is to do what we've been doing for the last 45 years, protecting marine wildlife at sea. You know, the strength of any movement has to lie in diversity uh, and interdependence of groups. There, it doesn't matter how you approach the problem, whether it be litigation, legislation, education, direct action, or intervention. They're all working towards the same end. So there's so many organizations doing so many things, and that's a good thing. The more organizations we have, the better. And in fact, grassroots organizations tend to accomplish more than the, the large, big groups. And Sea Shepherd was becoming big. Greenpeace became big. And I tend to drift towards the smaller uh, entities rather than uh, remain a part of a, a growing bureaucracy. So does that mean that the Captain Paul Watson Foundation will remain relatively small for its life? I think it probably will remain uh, small. I mean, uh, it always grows as you get more and more support. But I think the key to it is to make sure that you keep control of it. And I've learned lessons uh, from my time with Sea Shepherd. And uh, therefore, I intend to keep control over, over this. And it's easier to do with the fact that it's using my name. Uh, right. So we'll try to do that. But, you know, we don't want to be a, a large, bureaucratic, wealthy organization. We want to be an effective, small group that uh, targets uh, specific issues and sees them through. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You talked about earlier the phytoplankton issue and how that's been diminished. Can you break down for our listeners why a healthy ocean is so critical for this planet and why it's so important? Well, you know, this really should be the planet ocean. That's what it is. First of all, what is the ocean? When people say the ocean, they, they tend to think of the sea, but it's much bigger than that. The ocean, we are the ocean. Uh, it's, it's water in continuous circulation, sometimes in the sea, sometimes in ice, sometimes underground, sometimes in the atmosphere, 
and sometimes in the cells of every living plant and animal. Water continuously flowing through all of those different mediums. I mean, the water in your body right now was once pissed by a dinosaur. It's the same water. It was once probably uh, three or four months ago in the, inside the cells of a dandelion. That's the way it is. We are the ocean there. But I also look at it this way. Is, uh, if you look at this planet as a spaceship, which is what it is, we're on this incredible voyage around the Milky Way galaxy. It takes 250 million years to do one orbit. We've only done it 20 times. But every spaceship has a life support system. And that life support system provides us with the air we breathe, the, the food we eat, uh, and regulates climate and temperature. And that life support system, the machinery of that is run by engineers. All of those species that help run it, everything from bacteria through worms to fish to so all those species are making a contribution. Humans are not really making a contribution. We're, we're passengers on Spaceship Earth. What, what we're doing is uh, amusing ourselves, entertaining ourselves, but at the same time, we're murdering the crew members. We're killing off crew members. And there's so many engineers that you kill before, the, the, then the machinery is going to fall apart. And when it falls apart, that's not good news for the passengers either. And that's why I say when the ocean dies, we die. We don't live on this planet with a dead ocean. If phytoplankton disappears from the sea tomorrow, the ocean dies. It's as simple as that. Right now, they're also harvesting uh, krill in the Southern Ocean. Uh, Norway and Japan and Russia and China are doing it. What are they taking it out of there? Millions of tons of zooplankton for the purpose of making a cheap protein paste to feed to animals on factory farms, whether it be domestic salmon or pigs or chickens. But they're not taking into account the fact that krill, the zooplankton, is the foundation for the, all the food supply for the penguins, for the whales, for the other fishes and everything. We're messing with things which we have no idea what the consequences are going to be. And it's all because we're trying to maximize as much profit from short-term investment so that we can get short-term gain. It's really greed that is driving this. And unfortunately, the planet cannot sustain that. But of course, uh, you know, even the word sustainability, for instance, mm-hmm. that was coined in 1992 by Gro Harlem Brundtland, the uh, prime minister of, of Norway, when she said, you know, sustainability. What that has come to mean is business as usual under, under another name. Everything is sustainable now. I can tell you right now, there is no sustainable fishery on this planet, not a single commercial sustainable fishery on this planet. They're literally destroying life in the sea, and there's no accounting for it. Nobody knows exactly how much they're taking or where they're taking it and how it's moved about and everything. Now, the fishing industry will say, well, you know, people need fish to eat. Yeah, if you're, if you're going out in, your, in a small boat off of Nigeria, if you're going off a small boat out of the Philippines and catching a fish to feed your family, that's one thing. But catching an Antarctic or Patagonia toothfish in the Southern Ocean, then putting it into a freezer ship, then taking it to a port, then flying it to New York or to Paris, to London, to serve in an expensive restaurant under the name of Chilean sea bass, that is quite <laughs> another thing. Chilean sea bass is not a bass and it's not from Chile. It's a toothfish, but it's not a marketable term. It's an endangered species, and yet it's being uh, being sold left, right, and center. So I have to ask you a question that I did not have planned prior to uh, us getting together today that I wanted to ask you about. You know, as you know, we're at Midland Financial. We're in the wealth management space. So there's a lot of talk around ESG, environmental, social, and global, and governance, right? And using that in an investing environment. So I'm curious... In your view, is there such thing as a true company for profit that can operate in that type of environment? Or is it just really one of those things we strive for, but really is almost impossible to really achieve? 
There are a lot of companies which are very sincerely involved with uh, social change, especially with environmental issues. Jean-Paul DeJore is uh, one of our benefactors, you know, from uh, Paul Mitchell Shampoos and, and that. Not only is he a philanthropist, but he also makes sure that his products are, uh, you know, in line with his, his philosophy. Patagonia is another company that is making significant contributions. Adidas has been uh, trying to do the, the same thing. So I see more and more companies that are, are, are understanding that not only is it a good thing to do, but it's also a good marketing thing for them to do because people are becoming more and more aware ecologically of the need to change these things. And I think that a company that actually strives to contribute to making this a better world, to contribute to protecting the environment is in the long run going to do a lot better than a company that ignores those values. Right. I agree. So you've been on this mission for a long time to save the planet. What have you learned? What are a couple of major takeaways that you've learned over, you know, the decades that you've spent in in this space? I think one of the problems that we have in our societies is that uh, for thousands of years, we've uh, cultivated this view, which is called anthropocentrism. It's all about us. We're the only species that matter. It was all created for us. That, I think, is going to be our undoing. That's why I've been promoting this idea of biocentrism, which is everything is connected. We're all connected to each other. You know, a few years ago, I had, it was Brett Hume, who was a reporter for the Fox News Network. He called me up and he said, did you say that worms, trees, bees, and fish were more important than people? I said, yeah, I think I said that. He said, how could you say something so outrageous? That's ridiculous to say they're more important than people. I said, well, I said it because they're more important than people, because they can live here without us. We can't live without them. We can't live in a world without trees. We can't live in a world without worms and certain bacteria. We can't live in a world without fish. We certainly can't live in a world without phytoplankton or zooplankton. So yes, ecologically, they're far more important than we are. And if we don't recognize that, if we don't learn to live in harmony, with all of these other species and understand just how intimately connected we are to them, then we're just simply not going to survive. It's a big takeaway right there for sure. You have quite the uh, the hill to climb, I guess, to uh, achieve your ultimate goal. So if others who are listening today, if they want to figure out a way to get involved, be helpful, make an impact, how do they go about doing that? I think people need to follow their own passions you know, what are you passionate about? And then what can you do about it? And how can you use your skills and abilities to, to address that problem? And one individual can make a, an incredible difference. I mean, because of Diane Fossey, we still have mountain groves from Rwanda. Because of David Wingate, the Bermuda storm petrel did not go extinct. One person focusing on one particular species makes all the difference in the world. I mean, look what a teenager like Greta Thunberg has uh, been able to achieve. We just have to have the passion, the courage, and the imagination to challenge it. And I always say that the the solution to an impossible problem is to find the impossible answer. And that can be found through passion, courage, and imagination. 1972, the very idea that Nelson Mandela would ever be president of South Africa was unthinkable, therefore impossible, and yet the impossible became possible. So that's the way I like to approach this. Amazing. Are there opportunities with the Captain Paul Watson Foundation for people to help and make an impact? Yes, we. I mean, we're looking for volunteers for the ships. We're looking for volunteers on land. We need all the help we can get, especially since we're such a relatively small group. I went from being a large group back to a small group. 
There are obstacles in being a small group, but there's also great advantages, especially the freedom to grow and to, to evolve. So ever since leaving Sea Shepherd, I felt both very inspired and motivated, which I was something I was beginning to lose. You know, I was offered a lot of money to stay with Sea Shepherd. And basically, all I had to do was shut up and say nothing and be a figurehead. And I'm not, gonna, I, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> here to do that kind of thing. So I, right. I just resigned. Being small allows you to be a lot more nimble too, right? Yes. So, Captain Paul, it's been a great pleasure having you on. And we ask each of our guests the same last question because we are the Midland Money Mindset. And the question is, what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? What will bring me joy is uh, I have a six-year-old and I have an 18-month-old and uh, I'll spend time with them today. So that and also that that's extremely motivating. You know, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be here 50 years from now, but they will. So what kind of world is that going to be? I want to make sure that the world they live in is a world that's worth living in. And uh, so that's a, a huge motivation right, right there. Makes sense and sounds like a, a great reason to me for sure. So Captain Paul, we're going to have all of your information in our show notes. But if people want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and the Captain Paul Watson Foundation, what is the easiest and the best place for them to do that? CaptainPaulWatson.org or PaulWatson.org. It'll, it'll get there. <laughs> there you go. Well, listen, if you're interested in helping Captain Paul with his mission and you want to have a planet that you're kids, grandkids, and great-grandkids can be proud of, please reach out to them. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. I, I really enjoyed your time on Whale Wars and with Sea Shepherd, and I'm looking forward to the next adventure that we'll be able to see on TV to continue and continue to follow you. So thank you so much and, and make it a great day. Thank you very much. I want to thank Captain Paul Watson for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Captain Watson has dedicated the vast majority of his life to protecting the wildlife of our waters, and that has not been an easy journey. And as you know, nothing worthwhile ever is. The impact he has had on our waters, marine life, and the environment is immeasurable. I highly recommend that you learn more about Captain Watson and his work. My family and I learned about him through his work with Sea Shepherd and really appreciated and were grateful for the work he was doing and will continue to do now through the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. Captain Paul Watson and the Captain Paul Watson Foundation can be found across most social media platforms. All the contact information needed to find them can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. 
Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.